Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. We're talking with serious grown-up people from a wide variety of groups, and it's a genuine pleasure, and it's a privilege, to welcome you all and thank you for coming to this event on the future of U.S. agricultural and rural development policy. Where do the 2020 presidential candidates stand? We're on the cusp of the Iowa caucuses, a state where, quote, corn is king, uh, exploring today where the leading candidates for the Republican, because there's only one Republican, I guess, and Democrats, Democratic candidates for president stand, at least as of today and as best we can tell, on agricultural policy. So the, today's event is particularly timely. This is the one time, perhaps, in the presidential election process where all of the candidates have been paying at least some attention to agricultural policy. Agriculture is complex, and so too, therefore, is agricultural policy. As a result, today's panel cannot cover absolutely every aspect of U.S. agricultural policy, but our panelists will certainly enrich our understanding of key issues and where the candidates, including the president, stand on those issues. In the AEI report released this morning that was written by Dr. Glauber and myself, the authors identified the candidates' positions in 10 different areas of agricultural policy. These are the 10 areas. Farm safety net programs, that would be crop insurance and price-driven and income-driven subsidies. Conservation programs designed at maintaining the quality of land. Climate change, which is linked closely to conservation programs for many of the candidates. Agricultural trade. Renewable fuels, that's not a USDA program, it's a program managed by EPA, but it's of significant importance in agriculture. Agricultural R&D, agricultural labor markets and immigration, sustainable food and labeling, competition policy and rural development policy. So the report covers all of those 10 areas. We're going to focus mainly in the uh, panelists' opening remarks on the first six of those topics. At the outset, just to provide a little bit of context for the discussion, we thought it would be useful to show you the approximately 30, 33 billion dollars that the CBO estimated would be spent in 2019, as of May of last year. These numbers are a little bit out of date because at about four o'clock last night, the Congressional Budget Office issued new numbers. So I'm going to apologize that a couple of these numbers don't reflect their latest forecasts. One of the stunning things is that, in fact, the biggest share of payments that are going to agricultural producers come through Donald Trump's gift of uh, market facilitation payments to compensate farmers for, quote, losses associated with his trade wars with China and other countries. That's, that accounts for over, almost 30% of total direct subsidies to farmers. Crop insurance is a substantial deal, accounting for about 25% of those subsidies. That's a little misleading because about 30% of those monies 
are actually subsidies that go to crop insurance companies one way or another. So we're funding both the crop insurance industry and farmers through the subsidies to crop insurance program. 21% goes to price and income supports. About 17% goes to conservation program. That's about $5 billion a year right now. And we actually, ironically, spend very little more on agricultural research and development programs, which is one area where everyone seems to be benefiting through increased productivity at the farm gate level. We give public R&D resources about the same as we give to crop insurance agents and crop insurance companies at about $2.9 billion a year. Uh, So I just wanted to outline for you roughly where public monies are going. That's not the only mechanism of support for, for the farm sector. Notice there's no slice for rural development. That's because actual annual outlays from the federal government, taxpayer and borrowing monies, account for a very small, small share of total spending on agriculture-related programs. I now want to turn and just introduce the panel, and then I'm really thrilled to have such a distinguished panel here today, by the way. The first is Dr. Barry Goodwin. He's the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Agricultural and Resource Economics Department at North Carolina State University. He is a fellow of what I call still the American Association of Agricultural Economists because I can't remember the renamed version of that. He's a very distinguished scholar. And he's going to discuss candidates' perspectives and the nature of farm safety net and conservation programs. Dr. Joseph Glauber, who I suspect many of you are very familiar with, is currently a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, having previously served as the chief economist at the United States Department of Agriculture. He is also a fellow of the AAEA, and he will focus on three areas, climate change, renewable fuels, and agricultural trade policy. Dr. Philip Pardee is also a fellow of the AAEA. Uh, He is a professor of economics and director and I never get this right, but I'll try and get it right, Phil. He's director of the International Science, Technology, Practice, and Policy Center at the University of Minnesota. And he is arguably the leading researcher in the world on agricultural R&D and related issues. He wouldn't say that, but I can say that. He will naturally enough discuss agricultural R&D policy and where the U.S. fits and where the candidates fit in the national and global setting. And finally, it's a real pleasure to introduce Jerry Hagstrom, Mr. Jerry Hagstrom, who is the executive editor of the Hagstrom Report, one of the most widely read daily reports on agricultural issues and food issues. He is also a distinguished columnist at the National Journal. And Jerry will provide some critically important insights about the political landscapes the candidates are facing at this point in rural states like Iowa, where they stand, and why they stand where they stand in the context of rural voters. So I'm really pleased to be able to welcome all of the panelists. And now what I'd like to do is simply turn things over to Dr. Goodwin, and then we'll follow with Dr. Glauber, Dr. Pardee, and uh, Mr. Hagstrom. So I'm just going to give an outline here uh, briefly in what, what sort of the current state of affairs is with safety nets, and I think most uh, ag programs sort of can, can be considered to be some form of a safety net. More, more 
some more than others. First, the Farm Bill policies, I think a cornerstone of, of U.S. ag policy for the last several years, uh, since, since uh, 2012 especially, has been subsidized crop insurance. It protects yields and it protects uh, prices through revenue insurance. And I think that's notable when we talk about some of the other um, mechanisms that are triggered by low prices, MFP in particular. It, it's notable to know that there, there are programs, part of the Farm Bill in place, who address this. I looked at, through the cause-loss uh, data from RMA, uh, how much of the indemnities, there's been a lot of concern about low prices with the trade dispute. In 2018, about 4%, 3.9% of the indemnities were, were based upon price declines, and then only 1% last, or last year. So there is protection there for price declines built into that program. In 2019, the most recent year, we really have any, any good information. 380 million acres were insured and $110 billion in liability, so it's a very big program. It's heavily subsidized. It's not insurance, as, as I'm sure all of you know, as, as we usually think of insurance, because the 65% premium subsidy really translates into a, a large net positive gain for anyone buying the insurance. This last year, $6.3 billion was paid out in premium subsidies. And uh, I, I don't have the specifics on A&O, but there's a, a substantial amount that goes to the private insurance companies that administer this program. It's important to keep in mind there's, there's a couple of different constituency groups for this. There's the farmers themselves, but also the insurance companies, which don't bear a lot of risk in this program and typically enjoy underwriting gains. Uh, this past year, as you know, preventive planning has been a major issue. And preventive planning in the past has been really a, a big question of whether, whether there was ever an, ever an intent to plant on that, that land. Um, this year, I think it's about 20 million acres they finally figured out that was prevented from planting in a timely fashion. That's been a big issue, and it actually feeds into the MFP payments to some extent. The Title I programs, what we call the commodity title, the basic programs that have been around in some form or another for many years. Marketing loans, uh, really not very relevant these days. Loan rates have been increased, but they're still far below market prices for all the crops. So those have not been triggered. The ARC and PLC programs are two programs that are paid on the basis of historical production, base acreage. ARC in, in the past, for, for most commodities before the, the, the last farm bill, ARC had the bulk of enrollment, with the exception of peanuts and rice and a few others that went with PLC. We did see some of some shift toward the agricultural risk coverage ARC this last time, but I think it was less than a lot of us expected to see. Uh, 183 million base acres enrolled there, PLC 68 million base acres. It's notable, I think, of, of the major crops, only rice, cotton, peanuts, wheat, and grain sorghum actually triggered uh, PLC payments. The big development, and really in an ad hoc form of support, not part of the farm bill, is, is the market facilitation payments. Really a huge uh, wrench thrown into the, the uh, operation here. It's interesting, very interesting that this really represents, in, in my view at least, has, has some characteristics of being support that is coupled back to production again. It, in 2019, it was based upon planted acreage. 
2018 based upon production. Uh, the, the, the total numbers differ. I think around 25 billion, we said, Vince, uh, in total. This is the ARC PLC base acreage enrollment of coming out of the last farm bill. And you can see it's, it's split back and forth, but for most of the major crops, uh, corn, soybeans, um, producers chose to stay with the ARC. And all, that's, all of that is at the county level. Um, they have had the opportunity uh, through the past few farm bills to update their yields. It's rather complicated um, options that are there, but that does have uh, important trade implications again because it, it represents tying what used to be based upon uh, a base established many years ago in the 80s or uh, 2002. It, it is tying that back, support back to more recent production when you allow updating. The MFP payment rates, as I said, this is the administration's attempt to garner political support or and or compensate for some of the perceived losses in prices due to the ongoing trade disputes. You see, in 2019, the payment rates were increased significantly and expanded to other crops. So I think it's relevant to see, see how much the increases have been there. In every case where we had 2018 payments, the, 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 the rates of payment were increased in 2019. So I think of all of the things that, that, that I think are a big issue right now to look at, this is really the, what I think is a, a major one, and um, how it's going to play into the election I think is a, is, a, is a very interesting question. But you can see a shift here away from we had direct payments, we had a period of high prices when these safety net programs were not paying, at least through the Title I programs. But you see, again, the market facilitation payments that have really spiked here in the last couple of years. And again, to the extent that that's based upon current acreage or current production, it, it does represent, at least in some ways, a return to uh, support being based upon actual production and therefore relevant to WTO obligations of the U.S. And I think there's been some concern, Joe's the expert on this, certainly, but some concern that we're, we're heading, heading toward or already there, in fact, uh, of exceeding the, the U.S., I think it's $19.8 billion uh, limit on domestic support with these payments. Uh, of course, this is an instrument of the, the administration, and you can see there's been a bit of a geographic shift toward the south and, uh, and the Corn Belt as well in where these payments are going. I, I think that's relevant and it largely reflects the fact that we, at least the, the shift to the south, that we've opened this up to other commodities. Well, just to, to summarize the um, safety net programs, I think looking at the various platforms of the candidates, uh, everybody's in favor of safety net programs for, for farmers. I don't think you'll find any, anything that um, represents a, a departure from that. There's subtle differences uh, in, in how they would approach this. I think um, largely, though, it, it really reflects the continuation of existing programs with that, perhaps some increases. Um, there's a focus in, in the flavor of the debate on targeting support towards small family farms. And that's a, a bit of a misnomer. As you know, most all farms, large farms, are family farms for the lar large part. And 
any support that's based upon acreage or production is going to necessarily be focused toward larger scale operations. There's a lot of discussion about Sanders in particular, a so-called living wage for farmers. The one thing that's often not discussed within the context of farm incomes is whether we're talking about the income of the household as a whole, which really reflects the economic welfare of that family unit or, or household, versus farming income. And, and farm incomes are down without a doubt, but most farm households, even very, very big commercial farms, still rely on off-farm income to a large extent. I think it's not totally clear when, when we're talking about safety nets. Uh, typically, they don't consider uh, the overall farm household. Um, Sanders, I think, has the most um, radical proposals, which is, I guess, not a surprise. But in addition to this farm living wage, there's an, an advocation of parity pricing, which we haven't heard about in many, many years. I'm assuming with parity pricing, they're still talking about going back to the 19, was it 1908 to 11 or something like well, that? If you apply parity pricing, corn's, the price that would be guaranteed for corn would be about $20 exactly. a bushel as yeah. opposed to the 380 that it's currently at. It just ignores any, any changes that have happened over the last 100 years in terms of uh, cost of production and so forth. I think there is some... Um, Joe and Vince referred to Sanders as a back-to-the-future plan, and it, it, it sounds a bit like that, but supply controls may, may also be a part of that platform in, a, in an effort to increase farm prices. What's notable about Warren's platform, I think, is that there, there's a notion of basing support on cost of production. And really, every time we've heard of, of, of support tied to cost of production in the past, it's very difficult exercise to define cost of production. We had a, a lot of efforts to get cost of production insurance back many years ago and, and never were able to really settle on that. It's difficult to measure cost of production. So there's many, many issues with that. I think that's really the main distinctions there in, in terms of safety net programs. I think Sanders has some discussion of instead of Title I programs having a permanent standing disaster re- relief program, which may have some some merits. So in terms of just briefly the conservation programs, conservation in in the last farm bill really is pretty much budget neutral. It was front end loaded a little bit, the the allocation across the years. But uh, 7% of projected spending on the farm bill, but that's including nutrition programs. So it's, it's it's a more significant. I think there's some modest changes to sort of target some specific objectives really con- continuing the existing programs, which really there are three that are prominent. The Conservation Reserve Program, introduced in, in 85, been around since then. It's been reauthorized and expanding the acreage cap to 27 million, I think from about 23 million, so not a trivial increase. EQIP and CSP are programs that are intended to address conservation issues on working operations. EQIP in the past uh, was was skewed slightly in favor of livestock conservation issues, water quality, air quality, and so forth. And that's been reduced, I think it was 60% before, down to 50%, and there's an increase in wildlife practices to 10%. CSP is reauthorized, but the the slight reduction in enrollment and funding was cut by $1.24 billion a year over the 10 years that it's scored at. And then there are some uh, conservation easement programs still 
very trivial programs in, in large part. Uh, in terms of the candidates, I think the things that you hear so much about without a lot of specificity is a Green New Deal, control of greenhouse gases, and carbon sequestration. Really, they all share common themes, but I think in terms of specifics, it involves some expansions and enhancements to what we have now. So I'll turn it over to Joe here. I'm going to try to hit three areas here. And these are broader areas that aren't necessarily specific to agriculture, but have a are of keen interest to agricultural producers and others, uh, and that's trade, climate, and the renewable fuel standard. So let me start with trade, and I think there uh, you, you have President Trump, sort of the self-styled uh, tariff man whose who's tenure, at least thus far, has been defined by this aggressive unilateralism. I think within the first day or day or two of, of becoming president, his, one of his first actions was to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, he announced that he was going to renegotiate the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement, announced that he was going to uh, renegotiate the NAFTA. NAFTA, one of the worst deals ever negotiated in the U.S., uh, according to the president, or the then-candidate Trump, I guess. From there, we went to imposing 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum from China, Mexico, Canada, EU, and a handful of other countries, threatened automobile tariffs on the EU, imposed Section 301 tariffs on China, and all of this, of course, built up to what was a fairly major trade war with, with China and has, by most evidence, hurt agricultural a- a exports quite a good deal. I, China was one of our largest markets, and exports were cut significantly. Prices dropped in 2018, and that, as more and more producers and others started making their voices heard, uh, resulted in a fairly large bailout that Barry mentioned market facilitation payment program that's paying out somewhere in the order of total, not just market facilitation payments, but some other aids as well, around $28 billion over, over for both 2018 and 2019. And with some prospects, people talking about potential another round, uh, that is another whole new program for 2020 losses, but we'll see. And then lastly is, is uh, the president play in international forum for like the WTO, where he's locked appointments to the appellate body and has put that in crisis as well. So you turn to the Democrats and you say, well, how different are they? You know, are we seeing dramatically different differences there? And I, at the one end, there is Mike Bloomberg, who is, who is at least ha- hasn't said a lot, but is professed uh, belief in free trade and, and open markets. Yet on the other hand, there's candidates like Senator Sanders and, and Warren, who at least in reading a lot of the, their campaign material and other things, look far more protectionist and see trade more as undermining manufacturing and other blue-collar jobs. And I think even Barry mentioned the setting price supports, their policies of setting price supports high, and Warren has a proposal for a, a grain reserve. I mean, these are, these are policies that are much more insular than outward-looking. So I think the, the intent of the... Uh, of the policies are more closely aligned to the presence in one sense, if, if not in direct action. As, for, as far as voting records are concerned, and again, this only concerns those who've, who've been members of Congress, most have voted against trade agreements, with the exception of the recent vote over the USMCA, the new negotiated NAFTA. Both Klobuchar and Biden opposed CAFTA. Klobuchar voted against the Peru Free Trade Agreement 
Uh, I, I think the, the Joe Biden did not vote in that, for that. Uh, this was prior to him being vice president, but he didn't vote, it, uh, vote in that particular, um, for that particular piece of legislation. And for the new USMCA, Sanders opposed, but Klobuchar and Warren uh, did vote for it. It was also supported by Biden and, and Budgeting. Most opposed TPP, though there, of course, when Vice President Biden, well, his administration actually put forward TPP, he now has indicated support for joining CPTPP, that is the new uh, TPP without the U.S. that's been ratified by, by the other member, uh, member countries. They would consider joining if modified to include new standards for labor and the environment. I might add that Warren and Sanders have uh, indicated no support for that. Now, all have criticized the president for the impact of tariffs on farmers. But again, it's unclear as to what their strategy would be vis-a-vis China. And it's hard to beat the tariff man there, I mean, in terms of acting, at least appearing tough. Um, So I think that that, that one way or the other, uh, assuming a Democrat wins in 2020, that relationship of, of dealing with China is going to be a very, very interesting one. I would say this, however, is that presumably the Democrats are more likely to work within the system of international trade rules. I think clearly Trump has been a unilateralist there, has also been very, very critical of the WTO. And I think the, you know, that we're likely to see a return to more normal relations with, with our multilateral obligations there. However, I think that most of these candidates, uh, certainly Klobuchar, certainly Sanders and Warren, have talked about the importance of trade remedy laws like Section 232 and Section 301. So let's turn to climate, where I think there is a much bigger difference between the Republican, that is the president, and, and, the, and the Democrats. No surprise, President Trump's been much, uh, much like trade. The thing that stands out is sort of this aggressive unilateralist approach pulled out of the Paris Agreement, reversed many of the Obama-era regulations dealing with fuel efficiency and automobile emission standards, dismantled the clean power plan, and then this general promotion of coal and, and gas and oil development. And, and the Democrats present a very different view. I think almost, uh, I, I would say all of them have embraced to one degree or, or another the so-called Green New Deal, which at least has the goal of achieving zero net carbon emissions by 2050. That most of them have policies then to promote clean energy. That is a move to towards electricity, away from other fossil fuels, away from fossil fuels, promote R&D and investments in green technologies, and, as Barry mentioned, uh, embrace agricultural practices that either reduce carbon or sequester carbon. The big issue, of course, is how do you pay for this? Because these are trillion-dollar investments over time. Many have talked, like Sanders and Warren and Biden, about ending subsidies for fossil fuels. Well, that's good. Roll back, some would say, well, roll back the tax cut we saw in the first year or so of the, the Trump administration. But less direct endorsement of carbon taxes or cap and trade. And I think most people view the sort of monies necessary to, to, to get to a net zero emissions in 2050 are going to require some tax on carbon or some implicit cap on emissions. And there, again, I think everyone realizes that as soon as the word tax is out of your mouth, there's going to be a lot of incoming criticism. And so, I, you know, you get candidate things where, where uh, Joe Biden, for example, says he supports the idea of polluter pays, uh, but, but really doesn't provide much details. Now, when I say that, 
we're talking about campaign material. You know, as we go through debates and, and other things, you do see more and more emerge from the candidates in this regard. So we're talking at a given point in time. But, you know, Klobuchar uh, supports capping emissions but would avoid adverse impacts on agriculture. Well, so presumably that means not capping emissions for agriculture, but agriculture is a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Sanders in 2016 was supportive of the carbon tax. I think he's been a little more coy in 2020 um, there. And, and Warren also, when, talked, when asked directly about a, a carbon tax in interviews, has said, yes, that, that, that would be something that would have to be considered. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, yes, but no details. Uh, but a, yes, but, but uh, there he would take the revenues and put it back to needy Americans. So again, climate's a big issue. And it's uh, uh, if, if you think you're going to go the route of trying to achieve the sorts of goals of the New Green Deal, that's a lot of money. And so I, I don't think we've quite seen the sort of plans that one would like to see in terms of how um, and the impacts of how those things would, would actually affect agriculture and, and everyone else for that matter. And then lastly, I'll talk about the renewable fuel standard. Again, this, uh, this is something that's unique uh, probably because of Iowa coming right out of the, as being the first caucus or primary that renewable fuel standard comes up and, and has such a prominent role. Vince mentioned the West Wing episode where ethanol was mentioned, but one has to end up taking a side on ethanol and, and at least through the primary. Uh, after that, it, it tends to diminish in, in, in insofar as the national debate is concerned. You know, and, and the president has shown some vulnerability on this issue. I mean, after all, as Barry mentioned, EPA, with consultations with energy and USDA, are in charge of implementing the renewable fuel standard. It's on the plus side, the president approved uh, year-round availability of E15, that is blending up to 15% of the volume in, the, in your gasoline uh, with ethanol. But really, that's not a switch you just turn on. Um, uh, you need infrastructure, and that's been one of the drawbacks all the way through this, is that most gasoline stations where you, you gas up don't have the infrastructure to offer uh, a blend up to 15%. You normally get 10%. So the question is, how much will this really affect things without changes in the mandates themselves? And there, the other big criticism has been the fact that the, this so-called issue of small refiner exemptions, where small refineries who are obligated to blend ethanol, there's provisions in the, in the Act, the Energy Act, which would allow them to come in and say, look, this is, this is too onerous for us, we're, you know, a small operation is too costly. EPA can then grant these exemptions. The issue has been, well, what happens to those volumes? Do they get reallocated among the other companies, and that's what certainly the corn industry and others have wanted. The president has tried on a couple of times over the last few months uh, to try to rectify that and to reallocate, but still is receiving a lot of criticism from both the ethanol industry, corn growers, and even senators, uh, uh, members of Congress, Republican members of Congress like Senator Grassley. So with that, you turn to the Democrats, and there, there's no Ted Cruz or, or John McCain, of course, both Republicans, but there are no, there's no Democrat out there like, like McCain and, and Cruz were uh, in previous years saying no to ethanol or just saying what a bad idea it is. Even, even uh, Mike Bloomberg, who 
uh, over time or previously was very critical of, of ethanol has now said, well, he can see it as a transitional fuel as you're moving towards zero net emissions in 2050. But I, I think that is in, and, and, and so most, Demo- most of the platform uh, on ethanol for most of the Democrats have been to criticize the, the president on the exemptions for small refineries. But at the end of the day, the real, the real issue with ethanol is exactly this point uh, made by Bloomberg. That is, if you're all, and, and all of them are in the camp of the Green New Deal and pushing for, you know, moving uh, fuel, fuels from fossil fuels to electricity, that leaves very little room for ethanol. And so over the long run, all these ones are saying they're in favor of the Green New Deal, but also in favor of ethanol. And I think that at best, uh, that's a transition if, if indeed you're going to end up in a fossil fuel-free environment. And with that, I'll close. So we're now going to turn to Dr. Pardee, who is going to talk about R&D issues in agriculture, which actually lie at the core of our long-run ability to produce food. Uh, thanks, Vince. Clearly, the, the politics around uh, the role of R&D in the Farm Bill and the USDA is different than it was back in the middle 1800s when Abraham Lincoln signed the the very brief Articles of Incorporation for the USDA, which if you go back and look at that, run barely a couple of pages, printed pages. But the standout in, in those Articles of Incorporation were that the clear operational focus of the USDA was as a vehicle to discover and diffuse modern technologies and modes of farm practice uh, for the benefit of the agricultural community and, and, the, and the broader economy. And in the early days, uh, in the early decades, well over half of the... Uh, uh, USDA's budget was directed firmly to uh, R&D and uh, also related uh, extension activities. So it's the, the initial incorporation of that uh, institution was around a vehicle of innovation uh, in US agriculture. If we fast forward to now, as the picture is very different, as a share of just the, the farm-related uh, spending within the USDA, R&D is less than 10%, around 9%. As a share of the overall spend, including the nutrition programs, it's less than 2%. The landscape facing US agricultural R&D now is very different, even over the last uh, half century or so. And you can see a structural shift. Uh, these are in uh, uh, real uh, deflated uh, terms, and they're reported not by the, the uh, funder, but by the performer. So when I say private, I say pri- I mean privately performed food and ag R&D, and, and public here is publicly performed food ag R&D. And you can see a couple of things here. First off, that beginning back in the, the late 1970s, early 1980s, the private role in, as, a, as a vehicle of technical change in agriculture started to surpass, at least by spending, the public role and, and has continued to grow substantially and now far exceeds uh, uh, public spending. So the food and ag component of life science research is like the rest of life science research. It's like the health sector now. I think a lot of people in the policy arena think that there's a dominant, still a dominance of public presence in the innovation space in U.S. Uh, agricultural R&D, and that's not, not the case. But there's also been, a, clearly starting in the late 1990s, a slowing down and then a scaling back, in fact, a, a policy downgrading uh, of a commitment uh, to uh, R&D undertaken by the USDA and the agricultural experiment stations throughout the state. So a big structural shift uh, in that spending that's taken place over time. If we lift our horizons beyond the US border and look at where R&D in the US sits vis-a-vis the rest of the world, recognising there's just reams of economic evidence to show 
the very strong relationships between R&D spending and improved, the improved productivity performance of US agriculture, which is at the root uh, uh, of the comparative advantage that US agriculture has in uh, international trade and export markets. There's a seismic shift, and in the last decade and a half, uh, almost a tsunami, in terms of the US's role vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world in this space. So if you look back you know, 60 years or so ago, the US alone in the public ag, global public ag R&D arena constituted about 15% of the global total, which was just a little less than $9 billion. We've had a five-fold increase in global public investments in food ag R&D, and the US share has shrunk to 9.1%. So we're below a tenth, though we were at nearly 15% uh, of the total. The, the clear major shift there is China started liberating its agricultural sectors in the late 70s, was actually significant anti-scientific sorts of policies in place back in the 50s and 60s, which had actually gutted their, their research systems, not just in agriculture, but nationally. But they started to turn that around in the, in the mid-1980s, some major policy initiatives that were taken to, to pivot towards investments in R&D in China. So they seriously doubled down, and whereas the US slowed down and scaled back, they doubled down and stuck with it have been doing that for multiple decades such that they are now, their global share is where the US was back in 1961, so they're, they're exceeding uh, the global spend. And in fact, if you look subtly in this figure, the, the rich countries in total, the, the high-income countries, used to have greater than half the global spend. They now have less than half the global spend. So the, the economic geography of the roots of innovation in food and agriculture have undergone a fundamental change uh, over the last couple of decades, in, in significant part uh, to, to policy decisions taken here and in China and elsewhere in the world. If you look at large agricultural economies like Brazil, India and China and look at this landscape vis-a-vis -vis the US, they blew past the US around 2000 in terms of their total spend and interestingly in their public ag R&D spending and likewise in their total ag R&D spending. We just released some new estimates last year that we did uh, about three or four years to put together because they're tough numbers to dig out. Uh, our estimates are that China is now outspending the US both in public and private food ag R&D. Uh, the private includes state-owned companies but also uh, privately held shareholder companies and the like and there's been major acquisitions of companies in the US that have gone into China. And so again, that landscape is shifting uh, big time and that, that the R&D hand uh, is, uh, I've written, is slow magic. It takes uh, decades for that, that uh, R&D investment to play its hand out in terms of productivity change. It still takes seven to ten years to, to develop a new crop variety and then it takes a decade or two for that to, to work its way into farmers' fields and so forth. So the, 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 the consequences of this are, are sort of long-term structural consequences but the, there's clear evidence that the future ahead for the US, if it continues on the, the policy trajectory it's been doing for the last three decades, it's going to be a diminished comparative advantage uh, with respect to, to productivity growth vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And clearly... Most people don't recognise that, that China's agricultural economy is more than double the size of the US, and so one might expect China to be spending more than the US on food and ag R&D. And so what we do to often normalise those spending relativities is to look at the amount of R&D spend relative to the economic size of the economy, and we call that an intensity ratio. And here you can see a significant run-up over the very long run in US intensity ratios up until that downturn when there's been a precipitous drop in the public intensity, so that's saying for every $100 of output, uh, say around 2000 we were investing about 4 bucks in public food and ag R&D, and we're down to basically 2 bucks. And that gives you an indication about the sort of intensity and depth of investment 
in innovation but supporting that economic activity with respect to, to handling increasingly complex problems around climate change and, 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 and other environmental concerns, you know, some quite legitimate environmental concerns that impact agriculture or ag- agriculture impacts those climate uh, activities, but also at root sort of uh, production costs and prices of food and costs of production also get short-shrifted when you start uh, diminishing your intensity of investment. And you can look, see China has started to increase its intensive investment. Looking in the, in the, the looking glass looking forward, my, my sense is that China is going to keep intensifying its investment. There's historic, we've looked at a lot of historical data, and so they're going to keep scaling up their total investments because they're going to intensify their investments in agriculture. The reason their intensities are so low is because their, their product, output and productivity growth rates have been huge relative to the US over the last several decades. So whilst they've been doubling down in investments, their economic ag, ag economies have been growing at a fast pace and so their intensity, they haven't intensified their investment. I expect as they start to slow their overall growth to sustain those productivity performances of the past into the future, they're going to start intensifying. So that's only going to magnify uh, these, these differences between uh, China and the US and, and the US and the, the, the Brazil, Indias and Chinas of the world unless there's, there's a clear policy uh, shift in that direction. So quickly to wrap up, if you look at, uh, at uh, Joe's and Vince's excellent report that was released today, so what do the candidates say about this? Um, uh, there's only one candidate, Buttigieg, who actually puts a number down uh, and puts $5 billion down as a target uh, to uh, grow investments uh, in uh, public investments in food and ag R&D. And get, that would not redress the rundown that we've seen in the last 15 to 20 years. It would scale that back a bit, but it wouldn't turn that around or get us back on a, on a growth trajectory to recover the lost ground that we've had over the last several decades. Um, uh, 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 Vice President Biden uh, uh, has given some direct uh, commentary with respect to uh, increasing investments around competitive funding programs in the public sector, but doesn't put any numbers out there. Uh, a couple of other candidates allude to uh, comparatively small um, uh, increases. So uh, Klobuchar talks about tens of millions going in when we need uh, to, to redress the rundown. We need billions. Uh, and uh, uh, President Trump talks about 100 million or so of, of uh, topping up in uh, uh, competitive funding programs and the like. And most of the other candidates are either opaque or silent uh, with respect to investments. Uh, um, Bloomberg does make some mention about investing in climate-related research with some apparent implications in agriculture, but how much of that's going to be focused on pro- at root on productivity uh, concerns with agriculture is an open question. So I think uh, from a, a founding of the USDA where uh, R&D was ground zero uh, for, for the, the, the modus operandi of that, that uh, department to now where it's seen seemingly uh, rounding error in the overall budget and on the periphery of most candidates' budgets is... Uh, I think, an encapsulation of the shift in uh, the R&D focus uh, politically in the US. Well, we've had three uh, economists speaking. Um, uh, Now we're going to talk... uh, We're going to hear from someone who has a much better feel, in a way, for the politics on the ground and where the candidates are standing and where the agricultural sector and the rural sector are viewing those candidates. And, Jerry, it's my pleasure to introduce you to... Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to start off by thanking you and Joe for writing this report, which saves the rest of us so much work. Uh, <laughs> all that comparative, uh, all that comparative material. 
Uh, I will also begin by noting that I grew up on a farm in North Dakota, but I was one of those farm kids who thought life on the farm was boring, and I fled to go to the big city where I was lucky enough to become a political reporter, and I covered the political consulting industry at National Journal until I was lured back into agriculture. They needed someone to cover the farm bill, and they said, at least you grew up on a farm. So I am, in a way, returning to my journalistic roots by talking about the politics of uh, rural America. Uh, And, of course, the important thing is that agriculture and rural issues are really only important during the Iowa caucuses. It's the only time that they, that they uh, get a focus. Uh, and before I talk about this year's situation, I'd like to do a little bit of history here, uh, going back to 2008. And 2008 was an extraordinary year in rural politics uh, because Barack Obama took such an interest in in agricultural and rural issues. And he put out papers, but the most important thing was that he really asked for the rural vote in Iowa and in other places. I remember early in that year getting a call from the Obama campaign, and I was so shocked because I never heard anything from any Democratic presidential campaigns, I mean, trying to promote a story about the candidates' positions on agriculture? I mean, this is just unheard of. Uh, And he did indeed have detailed policy uh, positions. Uh, And like most uh, Democratic candidates, he emphasized competition policy, dislike for big business, uh, and also stricter enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act, which is supposed to protect producers from, uh, uh, big, from big business, basically in the, uh, in the meat industry. Uh, but you might ask why. Well, first I would say Obama was a state senator from Illinois, and even though he represented Chicago, he, was, uh, he also had spent time in Springfield. And secondly, he was a U.S. senator from Illinois. So you did have there a, a background, a forced background in agriculture, perhaps, But he had another big advantage. Senator John McCain never voted for a farm bill, and he detested ethanol. So there was an opportunity there, and Obama took it. And he uh, ended up in the general election, according to the exit polls, winning 50% of the farm vote, which is, or I won't say farm vote, of the rural vote, which is uh, extraordinary for a Democratic candidate, has been. Uh, the, you know, the, the only one that we can go back to who did fairly well in rural America was, uh, was Bill Clinton uh, in, uh, in recent times. Um, so then to go to, tw- but, but by 2012, the bloom was off the Obama rose. Uh, first of all, there hadn't been much enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act, uh, but that's a, very, that's a relatively minor issue, affects only the, uh, uh, only the smallest farmers. Most, the big farmers don't care about it, uh, or they don't want much enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Uh, but secondly, the Democrats in Congress had proposed the tar- carbon tax, uh, which the American Farm Bureau Federation opposed vigorously, and the Environmental Protection Agency had proposed this Waters of the United States rule, which the farmers detested because they were afraid it was going to bring uh, WOTUS uh, or bring EPA onto their farms. 
Uh, it wouldn't have actually been EPA. It would have probably have been the state EPAs. But in any case, they didn't want these agencies coming onto their farms. Uh, that year also, uh, Mitt Romney was, uh, did not have a reputation. Uh, he hadn't been in Congress, but he did not have a reputation of opposing agricultural policies. And he did campaign uh, for the rural vote. But Obama, according to the exit polls, Obama still got 40% of the rural vote uh, in 2012. So then we go now to, to 2016. In 2016, ethanol was the big issue. In Iowa, there was this huge forum at which the Republican candidates uh, staked out their positions on ethanol. Uh, and there were some variations on the theme, but they were generally supportive except for Senator Ted Cruz. And he was a vigorous opponent of ethanol, but he won the Iowa caucuses. Now, of course, winning the Iowa caucuses means that you get, you know, you get, you get those, the, you get a, you win by a little bit. But that doesn't mean that you, it isn't like you've won the, an overwhelming majority. You've just gotten more votes than any other, any other candidate. Now, uh, Donald Trump said he was supportive of ethanol. I believe he came in second in those caucuses. And then, of course, Cruz faded, and, and Trump became, um, uh, the, became the candidate. Now, in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton put out a detailed paper on agricultural policy and then didn't campaign in rural America. I remember she did one big event that was very highly orchestrated in, in Des Moines, and, uh, and that, was sort of, that was sort of the end of it. Uh, and, of course, Trump had an appeal, I think, in rural America, most of all with his criticisms of, this, of, the, of the coastal elites. Uh, he fed into a lot of resentment in rural America about uh, what was, uh, uh, what's, going, you know, what, what's going on in the country, how the country is changing, um, and uh, uh, especially in rural America where the population is going down, a lot of the a lot of the more liberal uh, youth leave, and so it, it it seems to become a more conservative place all the time, and so Trump um, uh, won big time in the um, uh, in rural America in the election. Now I, I'm going to make, do one sentence here on 2018 because I think it's important to note that in the Democratic victories in the House races in 2018. Uh, they won a number of districts in, that are a mix of suburban and rural. And so you have had a shift there. Uh, usually the Republicans, perhaps always the Republicans, did prevail in the rural counties. But uh, the way the districts are constructed, there are a number of Democrats uh, who, are, who partially represent uh, rural America, more than there were before the 2018 elections. So now we're, now we're up to 2020. I have to say that agriculture and rural issues have been less important in this election than in any election I've covered in many years. Uh, as far as I can tell, there is only one big Democratic event, and that was last summer in Storm Lake, Iowa, when they invited all the candidates to appear. And the... Uh, uh, the the reporters who did cover that event, uh, it, it was kind of hard to get to. It was a four-hour drive from, from either Des Moines or Omaha, as I recall. But the reporters who were there complained about the event because 
the, the uh, you know, they was, I think it was described as a debate, but it wasn't anything like that. The candidates, each candidate would, would go to the stage, make a presentation, and go out in the hallway and hold a press conference while the, other can, uh, the next candidate was appearing. So if you were a reporter there, you couldn't possibly cover two things at the same time. Uh, but there has been no big event on ethanol, uh, even though there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of controversy uh, over the uh, candidates' positions. Uh, the, uh, and another important thing that has happened, I think, is that the candidates all have papers, and most of them are, like usual, they're criticizing uh, big ag mergers, and they're emphasizing the Packers and Stockyards Act, but a group called Take Back Our Courts, which wants to enlarge the Supreme Court, says that unless the Supreme Court is changed, and none of those policies would work. So in fact, this I'd have to say this Take, take Back Our Courts seems to be a Democratic with a big D-inspired group, but they're criticizing their own candidates and saying, you, you can talk about these things, but this isn't going to happen. Uh, so uh, we're kind of in that position. Now... Where are we at with Trump? Well, uh, Trump rewrote the Waters of the United States rule. The farmers are thrilled. I mean, the number of press releases I got from farm groups praising the rewrite, um, is, I, to say it's extraordinary, it's, it's universal. There's almost no, uh, no uh, criticism of it. Uh, Trump's, it's possible to say that Trump's performance in rural America has been mixed, uh, I think rural people have liked a lot of what he has said on a cultural basis. But, of course, on trade, he's taken a position that is in conflict with the extraordinary exports that we've had in the, from rural America in the last several, several decades. Um, and, uh, but then there's the trade aid bailout, which we have been talking about. So uh, on on trade, the farmers seems to seems the farmers seem to have been satisfied. But of course, they say they want trade, not aid. They want to export. They don't want to get subsidies. Uh, but they're sticking uh, 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 with the subsidies. Uh, and then, of course, in biofuels, they've just generally not been happy with his administration because of the small refinery. Uh, waivers. And in fact, Senator Grassley has said that he believes that EPA needs to be issuing monthly statements on their progress towards meeting the 15 billion gallons of ethanol being used because otherwise farmers aren't going to, uh, uh, to, tr to trust them. Now, obviously, everyone is giving Trump the advantage in rural America. Uh, and I would certainly have have said that, but I'm now thinking that while it has, this has not been an interesting period leading up to the Iowa caucuses, the time when we're thinking about agriculture, now I think that the, next, the rest of the year is unpredictable. Uh, and here are my reasons. We've passed the, uh, or, or Trump has signed the deal with Canada. Uh, both houses of Congress have passed the USMCA deal. Uh, but now the question is going to be, will China start importing? Will we increase dairy exports to Canada the way that the uh, advocates of the USMCA have been saying uh, uh, should happen? Uh, and to fit in with this, 
we have the question of whether there'll be another uh, trade aid package in 2020. There's one coming out that's the, the last of the 2019. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue has said, we don't need another package because there's, we're going to be exporting. But we don't know whether that will be. And at the American Farm Bureau Federation convention, the delegates came out in favor of consideration of another package. Uh, and that is sort of in conflict with previous Farm Bureau policy, which has always been very, uh, very free trade oriented. And then, the, of course, the, um, the, the renewable fuel standard uh, latest iteration was released. And the biofuels industry is not happy with it, and they are very distrustful of the administration's promise that they're going to uh, move up to this or to this $15 billion, uh, or not $15 billion, $15 billion gallon uh, level. Uh, so uh, at this point, I think that the, that the race in rural America could be more interesting than we expect it to be right now, depending on what happens uh, in, the, uh, in the rest of the year. In my view, the Democrats' uh, best position they could have taken, they haven't taken, and that would have been to criticize Trump on trade. And the reason I think they haven't taken it is that both the Democrats and the Republicans care more about the votes of manufacturing workers than they do about the farm vote. And both sides really want the votes, especially in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And there are more manufacturing workers and retired manufacturing workers than there are farmers. So I think that's uh, where we're at on why we don't have stronger positions um, on the trade issue. Uh, but what's, what's happened uh, as I was preparing for this event is that I have been forced to think about the 2023 Farm Bill. And I now believe we, re we really have a lot of questions about what that's going to be like. Uh, the Washington Post recently did a story in which they said that the, we have ended the period of free trade with the signing of the China deal. We are now in a period of managed trade. There would be people who would say, we've always been in a period of managed trade, but now it's kind of clear. Uh, if we're in a period of managed trade, what does that mean for farm policy? What, how, are we, how are we going to aid farmers? What are the expectations? Uh, second thing is, will the Trump administration uh, or President Trump follow up on his promise that he's going to cut spending in a next administration? If he's reelected, will he really insist on that? Uh, you know, we don't know that. Uh, but finally, I will bring up the issue that I haven't uh, mentioned here, which is the nutrition programs. And as many people in this room know, the, uh, the Trump administration has been, has been making it harder for people to have access to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or food stamps. Uh, they have made some changes to the school meals program that nutritionists don't like. And I believe that when we get into a farm bill, there is going to be pushback about this, especially if the Democrats are in charge of the, of the House, uh, which according to most analysts, they still will be. So I think we might have a more exciting election in rural America than we have been expecting. 
And I think that our debate over the, in the, over the next Farm Bill will be both vigorous and unpredictable. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.